Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm David Felton and I'm here on a miserly Cumbrian September day in Keswick, the bustling market town with author, illustrator and guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. <laughs> Hello, David. This is... Typical Cumbrian weather. I think all our listeners will say, yes, I've been in Keswick on days like this before, but you can't have lakes without this sort of weather. So we found a few trees to harbour beneath, and uh, it's uh, serving as well at the moment. And, of course, I brought an umbrella. Yes, good. We remembered at last. What, what would you think the uh, Cumbrian term for this kind of weather would be, Mark? Dreek. Is that a word? Yes, I think that's it, isn't it? That yes. kind of... General, bleak, slightly wet, grey. I was saying this to my wife on the journey here. You need days like this for the days when the sun shines because it brings out the vigour and colour and dynamism of this landscape. You need to have occasional days like this. Yes, it's true. In fact, I think by the depth of Thirlmere at the moment, we need quite a few more like this. Now, we're in the, I think they call it the Rawnsley Car Park, don't they, near the uh, pencil factory buildings, which are just behind us there. Now, um, mainly taken over, I think, by convention uh, operations, but we can see in front of us, is that cat bells? Just in the, can't well, be, can it? Well, it, the shape is correct for uh, Scalegill Bank, but, ooh. You know, this is the thing about mist. It's mystifying. Yeah. And we're here in Keswick, Mark, like we were last time when we came here for a podcast, to talk about a not dissimilar theme. Last time we were here, our subject was Hardwick Rawnsley, that great champion of uh, the Lake District. Today we're talking about other historical figures, but people who perhaps haven't shared the same limelight. We're using as a springboard for today's walk a wonderful book written by a local author called A Passionate Sisterhood which is about the sisters, wives and daughters of the Lakes poets so these are all the women who surrounded Coleridge Wordsworth, Salvi some of whom, people like Dorothy Wordsworth, are relatively well known their published works are well known but plenty of those women are really lost in the margins of history and our guest today will argue that that's a great disservice to them. These were fascinating women leading fascinating lives. Who is our guest today, Mark? Kathleen Jones, who has studied this whole arena of thinking behind the women who were inevitably underplayed, but actually, as I find with them, with my own wife, a very strong force. Well, we shall see if that's the only thing that uh, your long-suffering wife shares with these historical figures in a podcast that will talk about illness, tragedy, that will talk about creativity, that will talk about walking, drug use, and that will talk about characters without whom the output of the Lakes Poets would almost certainly have been very different. Let's go and meet Kathleen.
We're at the edge of the Rosie car park. It's lovely to see you, Kathleen. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your Cumbrian connections? Right. I was born in Cumbria on a small hill farm at the back of Skiddaw, not very many miles from where we are now. A very rustic childhood, kind of 19th century childhood, because we didn't have electricity or running water or anything that you'd think of as mod cons. You are an author, Cathy. Uh, what sort of interest do you have as, a, as an author? I suppose what brought me into writing right from the beginning is uh, people's lives. I've always been fascinated by people's lives, and this is part of the Lake District thing. Being brought up on a very remote farm, we were surrounded by people who'd lived there for generations, and they used to come um, and sit around our fire in the evening and tell stories. And I just became fascinated by, by this, and that led me into writing. And poetry and biography and fiction, they're all about people's lives, And the reason we're here today is for a whole group of people. Could you talk us through what we're going to cover today? The group of poets that came to be known as the Lake Poets, or the Romantic Poets, there was uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, William Wordsworth and Robert Southey. All started out in the West Country. Um, What interested me most and what I focused on was the women that they married or that they chose to spend their lives with, uh, their wives and their sisters, which uh, included uh, Sarah Coleridge, Edith Southey, who was Sarah's sister, and Dorothy Wordsworth, who was Wordsworth's sister. Robert Southey married Edith, and uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge married Sarah. William married a childhood friend called Mary Hutchinson, and her sister, Sarah Hutchinson, was the woman that Coleridge fell in love with while he was or he was married and had a very a rather tragic and uh, sad love affair with that could never be consummated these women their story was not really told no that's what intrigued me that there were these obviously very talented very feisty women very well educated women and nobody had written about them, and they were very rarely mentioned. And yet they were absolutely central to the lives of the Lake Poets, of the men. And they facilitated their creativity, and in some cases uh, were, were part of it. I mean, Dorothy Wordsworth was absolutely crucial to the work of William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Her journals were of utmost importance... Um, Sarah Coleridge was also a very well-educated woman. That's what attracted Coleridge to her. None of these stories had been told, and their lives were pretty well invisible. And that's what I wanted to focus on, particularly when I found documents, letters and diaries that these women had kept in the Wordsworth archive at Dove Cottage. There were drawers of them that the archivist, when I talked to him, said nobody had actually read. I couldn't believe it. Staggering. They were absolutely wonderful, these boxes of unopened letters. And all the scholars who came to study Wordsworth and Coleridge there never, ever looked at the journals and the letters, which told such a fascinating story, not just about their lives, but also about how the poems were made, uh, the conversations that they all had, 
uh, around the kitchen table about the poems that William and Coleridge were writing. This, this was an absolutely fascinating untold story. Well, you've set the scene there, Kathleen. I'm really excited about this. There's so many stories lurking, I'm sure. We'll have a little bit of a stroll, get out of this bower, and we'll go and find one of the magical homes, Greta Hall. We've made up the slope, up the drive, as it were, but we come up to the gate at the entrance to Greta Hall, which uh, is now a very much a private home, so we can't go beyond the gate. But I can peer through, and I can see the front door. It's a white building, quite tall. Now, Kathleen, you have been inside. You have the inside knowledge. The interior has been kept very much as it was uh, when Coleridge first moved into it. When uh, Coleridge and his wife took the house, they moved up here to be near the Wordsworths. It was, in fact, um, shared with the owner, He built it as a commercial project to rent out half of it. And so he lived in one half and the Coleridge's had to live in the other half. And it was something of a ramshackle build. It had to be um, repaired various times. Apparently the wind blew through it and the wind blows in the Lake District and they were freezing and it rained into the house as well at times. But eventually, of course, they took over the whole house and when Southey moved up here to be with them, Uh, Then, of course, they had the whole house, and it was beautiful, apparently. There are descriptions of all the little clogs lined up in the hall of all the Southey and Coleridge children and all their little coats hanging in the hallway. And then upstairs, all the bedrooms are now labelled, depending on who occupied the rooms. One of them was Coleridge's study, which then became Southey's study, Southey wrote about the fabulous view. He said it was like a giant's encampment. He likened the fells to huge tents. <laughs> they absolutely loved it. It was so different from anything that they'd had before. Well, that gives us a feel of what that setting was. Can you give us a little bit more sense of the historic times that they were experiencing that led them ultimately to move here? The end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century were actually very turbulent times in England. Uh, You were in the aftermath of the American War of Independence. The um, French Revolution had just happened. Wordsworth, in fact, went to observe the French Revolution, which is where he met Annette Vallon, the woman he had an affair with, and she gave birth to a child, Caroline, and he uh, subsequently abandoned her and came back to England. It was very turbulent in England because it was feared that uh, some kind of revolution would happen in England too. It was reckoned that 40% of the population of England were living in dire poverty. So there was a massive rural poverty problem, which you can see in Dorothy's journals. She talks about the the people going door-to-door begging, that the soldiers cast off from the French walls, injured or discharged... Um, who were begging, going around, some some of them without shoes. So England was a a very turbulent place to live in. And at one point, uh, Wordsworth and Coleridge were suspected of being French spies when they lived in the West Country. Wordsworth, of course, because he'd been to France and been in the French Revolution, he and Coleridge were suspected of being French spies. They were both radicals at the time... Wordsworth wrote that he had a hatred of um, our oppressors, 
which I think was linked directly back to the Earl of Lowther, who owed his father huge amounts of money which wasn't paid, and so Wordsworth was forced to live in poverty. And he had very radical sentiments, which I think is why he went to France when he did. Coleridge, of course, was a Unitarian and a, a radical, and they were very friendly with um, an English, one of the main English radicals from London, who came down and stayed with them when they were living in the West Country. So they were under suspicion and being followed by government spies wherever they went. I think part of coming back to the Lake District was to escape this. Well, we got this picture of this uh, troubled England and the troubled lives that were very much influencing the radical thinking of these key characters. Could you draw us back to the early times of these key players in this story? It was quite a coincidence that all these people, the women as well as the men, had lost their parents in childhood. They were all orphans. Um, Sarah Coleridge, her father committed suicide because he was approaching bankruptcy. Southey's father and mother also died. Wordsworth lost his mother when Dorothy was only six and then his father died four or five years later and Coleridge lost his father. Um, They were all orphans and I think this drew them together. They were almost creating their own family, uh, a group of like-minded people, all with radical ideas at the time. They uh, floated this idea of pantisocracy, of forming a community, and they were going to go to America and live in this incredibly democratic uh, community. Coleridge actually wrote about um, the men having to do housework, that there was going to be equality between man and woman, but of course that didn't last. What intrigues me is they all coalesce from different locations and they seem to come like a magnet together. Well, Wordsworth, of course, came from the Lake District, um, but the common factor was university. Wordsworth, Southey and Coleridge were all either at Oxford or Cambridge and they met because they were all interested in poetry. Wordsworth was beginning to publish his very early stuff and this was picked up by Coleridge and Southey. Um, Southey came from Bristol and he knew the Fricker sisters, Sarah, Edith and Mary, who ended up marrying Southey and Coleridge. So Wordsworth was invited down Coleridge was invited down to meet uh, people in Bristol, ended up having dinner with the the Fricker sisters and Southey. Wordsworth lived in a borrowed house whose owner didn't know that they were living there. This was at Racedown in Dorset, which was quite close to where Samuel Taylor Coleridge was living with his wife Sarah. And there's this marvellous story where Coleridge was determined to meet Wordsworth and came bounding down the field and jumped over the fence (laughs) at Racedown when they were working in the garden to meet Wordsworth and Dorothy and then of course began to spend a lot of time there walking around the countryside talking poetry writing poetry they became very close and of course through Coleridge Wordsworth got to know Southey better this is how the group came to know each other initially in the west country before they all moved up to the Lake District. They had a political uh, outlook that was very much in keeping with one another and they were charged together like a bond of brothers. It kind of reminds me of the 1960s in Britain when we felt we could change the world 
and young people were getting together with radical ideas and doing um, amazing things. And there was a revolution in art and music and in literature. Wordsworth, Coleridge and Southey were part of much the same thing back at the end of the 18th century. They were intent on creating a revolution. Initially, they were talking about a revolution in the way, in ways of living, in pandasocracy, but this spilled over into literature, and they began to think about writing a new kind of poetry, of leaving the past behind, of writing a poetry that William described was in the voice of people as they talked to each other, not in some weird poetic language, but in the language of ordinary people and about ordinary people. Keith, to all of this, was the intensity of their friendships. They were really focused in on one another. Yes, they were, particularly Wordsworth and Coleridge. They were very, very close. And part of this closeness, of course, was Wordsworth's sister Dorothy. When they were living at Racedown, Wordsworth and Coleridge spent a lot of time together, either at Racedown or at Coleridge's home at Nether Stowey. Their relationships became incredibly intense, too intense, I think, because in the end, their friendship simply couldn't sustain the emotions that were being put on it. They were very happy down in Dorset with this uh, triangular relationship. But once they moved to the Lake District, things began to fall apart. They were too close to each other and there were jealousies, there were challenges to loyalty. Wordsworth demanded complete loyalty from his friends and Coleridge at times felt betrayed by him. Uh, It was all about Wordsworth. Coleridge said some very cutting things about him. He said um, that he was all man. He had not a feminine bone in his body, which for Coleridge was a, a criticism of the worst kind. And of course, eventually they fell out over Coleridge's uh, difficulties, his personal difficulties. Well, you've sown the seeds of what he might describe as the discontent. We'll make a little stroll into town and um, explore those women, the women who are lost in amongst it all, who are absolutely central to your thinking. Well, we've ambled through the town, and for all it's a weekday uh, in late September, there are quite a bustle of people here. And we've moved into the Crow Park, and the cloud base is at about 700 feet. So looking back towards Skidder, no, there's no Skidder. The leaves are turning. There's a little bit of bronzen on this uh, birch tree beside me. Turning of the seasons in our midst. Now, Kathleen, we left our group of ferocious writers down in the West Country, but they moved up here. Wordsworth and Dorothy had always wanted to come back to the Lake District, which was where they felt they belonged. It was their home. And they were left a little bit of money by one of Wordsworth's friends, who died as a young man, Raisley Calvert, and he left them some money. So they came back to the Lake District and they rented Dove Cottage. And Dorothy, with her share of the money, bought all the furniture. So it was a home for both of them. And they were really, really happy. I mean, Dorothy was absolutely ecstatic about being back in the Lake District. It was winter, so it was quite quite cold. It must have been quite cold coming into a damp, empty cottage uh, at that time of year. But nothing could deter Dorothy from her pleasure of being back home. 
And of course, Coleridge, all he wanted to do was be with Wordsworth and uh, pursue the collaboration that they'd begun in Dorset, writing poetry, and the, the personal collaboration that they had as well, the deep friendship that he believed they were like brothers. So he moved up here, and he and his wife, Sarah, rented Greta Hall. Intriguing, I think, if we're going to turn our minds to the feminine component of this whole story, was Dorothy and William. They were very close. They were very close indeed, and in fact it gave rise to a lot of um, gossip when they were alive. Uh, and of course today there's always speculation about their relationship. But I found nothing to suggest anything other than an incredibly close brother and sister relationship. Dorothy had been separated from her brothers at the age of six, sent off to be brought up by one of her mother's cousins, whereas the boys all went to a boarding school together. And Dorothy wasn't reunited with her brothers until she was 15 or 16. And she described being absolutely mad with joy. And Wordsworth described his reunion with his sister as a gift first bestowed. Uh, uh, the meeting together was what social workers call genetic attraction, where siblings, family members who've been separated as small children, are reunited as adults. They experience uh, a sensation like falling in love. They saw themselves in each other. And, of course, they shared what no-one else could share with them, was this childhood, this lost childhood in the lakes. When they had been very close, they were the middle children. They'd been christened together. They'd spent the first six years of Dorothy's life together. So they became incredibly close. Wordsworth shared everything with Dorothy, and she shared everything with him. They each got something very important out of the relationship. Wordsworth was able to give Dorothy, as an orphan, um, the security of family life that she had never had. And she gave him her loyalty, her devotion, her critical mind, and more important still, her powers of observation, which even John Keats remarked on. Keats called it her trembling snail horn powers of perception. How does Coleridge fit into that very tight bond? Coleridge bounded into their lives in Racedown um, in that episode where he turned up unannounced and was welcomed by both of them. And he more or less fell in love with both of them. She was um, Wordsworth's wonderful sister, and uh, Wordsworth and Dorothy both described Coleridge as the most wonderful man they had ever known. So there was this threefold falling in love <laughs> and literary partnership. A triumvirate. A triumvirate, yes. Uh, a Victorian critic called it a co-partnery. <laughs> and they used to go walking together and Dor Dorothy used to write it all up in her journal a journal that she began really for Wordsworth because he'd complained that when he was in Switzerland Dorothy wasn't with him to remember everything in detail that when he wanted to write about it later he couldn't remember the details so she was there as the recorder and the observer and her observations actually found their way into Coleridge's poetry as well there's a wonderful a bit, I think it's in Christabel, where he's describing a single leaf fluttering at the top of a tree. All the other leaves have fallen off. And that, of course, is an entry in Dorothy's Alfoxton Journal, where they were walking, and she saw this tree, and she describes in really beautiful poetry how this single leaf was twirling and spinning at the top of the tree. So you brought the Wordsworths and the Coleridges to the lakes. There's another part of the equation. Yes, uh, Sarah Coleridge's sister was married to the poet Robert Southey 
and they'd been having a very tragic time. They'd um, had problems with their marriage, they uh, had a baby that died of meningitis and were in mourning. And so Coleridge invited them up to the lakes in order for Edith to recover. He thought that the company of her sister would help her to get over the death of the baby. But of course, the, the Southies really enjoyed life here. They stayed. And then Coleridge decided that he had had enough of married life and he was going to go off and uh, live with the Wordsworths and spend time in London and various other places. He was by this time in love with Sarah Hutchinson, Wordsworth's wife's sister. And he abandoned his wife and children into the care of Southey, who stayed to look after them while Coleridge went off and of course Coleridge never really came back so Southey found himself uh, in charge of in fact three families because his other sister-in-law Mary who was a widow was also living with them at the time so Southey was in charge of uh, large numbers of children many of which were not his and of course they are all just up the road from where we are the other side of town at Greta Hall the Southern children had lots of favourite walks centred around um, Don't Water. They loved going up Cat Bells. Um, their favourite was Waller Crag, which they loved. They loved going out picking ferns and uh, on nature walks, picking wildflowers. One of Sarah Coleridge's favourite outings was uh, from Crow Park, here where we are, to the island. They used to be invited to dinner by the man who lived on the island, and Sarah loved getting dressed up. The Wordsworths mocked her cruelly for her love of nice clothes and going out to dinner. So she would come to Crow Park with Southey and Edith, and they would embark in a boat and go across the island. And Sarah Coleridge, unfortunately, grew increasingly large as life went on, and getting into a boat became very difficult. And she was again cruelly mocked for... For this, but she just loved this excursion of going out to dinner properly on the island by boat. Um, very romantic, being rowed across the lake in the moonlight. The intriguing thing is that they move up from West Country, and certainly Bristol, which was at the time very much the beating heart of the industrial and the, don't say global Britain, but the uh, empire. It was a bubbling, economically strong area with a strong society. They move up to Cumberland. They come to Keswick, which was a humble little town. What was the character of the town when they moved in this area? It was very rural, a little market town. It was very difficult to get to. Uh, the road access wasn't good. It was very different to socially sophisticated Bristol. And so the people that the Coleridge's and the Southies and the Wordsworths could mix with was actually quite a small pool of people. There wasn't a lot of mixing between classes in those days. I mean, Dorothy at one point describes uh, where she's living and says, there are only two people um, that we can know within two-mile radius. And she means people with a high enough social status to be able to visit, to exchange visits. It was a very snobbish time. That was intriguing. We'll go for a little bit of a wander. We'll perambulate from here, as was the way then and certainly is today, and talk a little bit more about the uh, relationships that they had. Now we've come to the drafty edge of the lake. Almost got the lapping waves at our feet, which is rather special. And the view, despite the cloud level, 
is unfailingly exciting. I can see Kings Howe and Castle Crag and of course the island and then above that Catbells, the very summit is hidden, but the Skelgill Bank is visible, and Rowling End above Newlands, that's all there. Geese, there's ducks, and just a handful of people in this setting at where the launch is at rest at the moment. So here we are, in a place that these famous people loved and strolled in. Could you tell us a little bit, Kathleen, about Lordenham? Laudanum was really the only effective painkiller that was available at the time. It was a distillation of opium and alcohol. It wasn't very pleasant to drink, so people used to wash it down with brandy uh, or port to make it more palatable. It was really a drug of the middle and upper classes because very poor people couldn't afford it. It was also highly addictive, which no one realised at the time, but... There is a huge number of very famous literary figures who were addicted to laudanum. Coleridge had uh, problems with his health when he was at school. He was given um, laudanum for pain, and then he began to take it regularly for his health problems. He had a lot of psychosomatic problems, uh, trauma related to childhood and probably from being abused at boarding school. Sarah Coleridge said that he had terrible dreams in the night when he used to wake up screaming. And he took laudanum more and more frequently. And it got to the point where he became ill if he stopped taking laudanum, which, of course, is the withdrawal symptoms. And so it became a vicious cycle. And Dorothy Wordsworth was also fairly dependent on laudanum. She had terrible problems with her teeth, uh, which laudanum helped to ease the pain. She also suffered all her life as did William, from what we now call psychosomatic illnesses. They were both very nervous. They had problems sleeping, Dorothy particularly. She suffered a lot from loneliness, from the childhood trauma that she'd suffered, from frustration of not having uh, a partner, a lover, children. She was desperately jealous of Wordsworth's wife Mary and her children. She suffered a lot psychologically and laudanum was the only remedy that you could take and she took more and more of it and she too became dependent. Laudanum itself went down the Coleridge family line. It did. It wasn't just Coleridge who became addicted to it. His uh, daughter, Sarah, uh, became addicted to laudanum. So much so that several of her children died, either um, before birth or just after birth. She had a long correspondence with Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who was also a uh, laudanum addict, about the problems of taking just enough to keep the symptoms down, but not enough to um, cause other health problems, and particularly as both women wanted to have children. So this laudanum was actually heroin. It affected all sorts of families, and those who could afford it, their offspring. Yes, the effects of heroin on uh, the unborn child are recognised now, that the babies are born addicted, like the parents, and they die of withdrawal symptoms shortly after birth, die a very painful death. Heroin is a, just another form of opium, basically, uh, more common today than the raw opium that was uh, bought in this area back at the end of the 17th, 18th centuries. In the 18th century, it was called Kendall Black Drop. Uh, was a very famous, very powerful distillation of raw opium mixed with alcohol. One of the overriding themes that 
runs through your book is the general unease and unhealth of the people involved. I would say that uh, mental health, poor mental health, was a serious problem for the whole group. Edith, uh, Southey's wife, she was uh, a very nervous disposition, apparently, to begin with. She suffered more than her sisters, I think, from the trauma of losing their father. Suicide was considered um, shameful in society. She then went on to lose several babies. Her babies died. She absolutely loved her children. And as each baby died, her mental health became worse and worse. And she was eventually admitted to a Quaker asylum for women to be treated. She had a complete and utter mental breakdown. Dorothy Wordsworth also suffered from very poor mental health. I think largely due to the fact that she adored her brother. He then married a woman that pushed her into third place. Even though Mary was incredibly tactful and considerate of Dorothy and the special relationship she'd shared with William, Dorothy still felt pushed out of her own home and her relationship with her brother by his marriage to Mary. She was often ill physically. She suffered from uh, various uh, disorders of the stomach, which uh, were brought on by, she said, nervous agitation of the mind. So she herself admitted that there was a link between her illnesses and her mind. Um, and then, of course, she had to watch Mary giving birth to children, children she adored. There's one poignant entry in her journal, and which also comes into her letters about watching Mary feed the baby. It says, his beautiful little head lying on her breast. And you just get this sense of a woman who has been unable to have children and she's coming to terms with this. And her mental health does deteriorate. When you think of this ill health, what they didn't lack was a, an appetite for walking. The phenomenal distances they did. They, they walked from Keswick to Grasmere. Dorothy, there's stories of her climbing Scorfell Pike and going over the tops. Uh, this is phenomenal story of embracing this great landscape. It was. Uh, Dorothy was a phenomenal walker. They used to work, walk huge distances, and when they were living down in Somerset, Coleridge used to regularly walk down from London to Somerset. It took him a few days, sleeping in hedgerows and barns, and uh, the amount of shoe leather they all got through was quite an expensive bill to pay. Uh, Dorothy was the greatest walker of them all, and even Wordsworth remarked on her ability. She was like a greyhound on the fells. I mean, she did walks that even climbers now uh, find extraordinary. She loved walking. In Wordsworth's poems, she's sometimes portrayed as a kind of Emily Bronte figure, um, walking wild with the wind in her hair on the fells. She defied many of the female conventions of the time. And there's a, a letter she wrote to one of her relations who had complained about the fact that she was gallivanting about the countryside in a most unseemly manner, unbefitting a lady. And uh, Dorothy's response is very tart. Now, you've hinted at uh, the discord that started to feed into their immensely intense relationship. And it was actually Coleridge's drug dependency that broke it. It began with his marriage. If anyone has been married or had anyone in the family who is uh, an alcoholic and drug addict, 
then they will know how difficult it is to live with them and how disruptive their habits are on the household. Sarah Coleridge did her best, but it was really impossible. Col Coleridge became almost impossible to live with. He was also in love with another woman, Wordsworth's sister-in-law, Sarah Hutchinson, and that made her feel absolutely dreadful, as you can imagine. He stormed off and went, said he was going to live with the Wordsworths, who were his true friends, and would treat him as he deserved to be treated, as his wife was not appreciating him. But of course, the Wordsworths soon found that he disrupted their lives as well. He was getting up in the middle of the night and uh, asking, the, asking the maid to prepare food for him and all sorts of strange behaviours. They quickly realised, too, just how powerful his drug habit was and how much alcohol he was consuming with the laudanum. Coleridge became very disenchanted with Wordsworth. They had a falling out over literature, over Wordsworth not including his poem in the second edition of Lyrical Ballads. But the main trigger for the breakup of their relationship was when Coleridge was going to London to stay with a friend of Wordsworth's. And Wordsworth wrote a letter to the friend warning him about Coleridge's laudanum habit and his disruptive behaviour. Unfortunately, when he got to London, Coleridge discovered that uh, Wordsworth had issued this warning because the friend refused to put a bottle of wine on the table at dinner. And Coleridge was devastated, and he said it was uh, the greatest betrayal of his life. And from then on, uh, the relationship between the two men broke down completely. And of course, it meant that the relationship between the families also broke down. People were taking sides, people were offended. There was a, a meeting at uh, Dove Cottage with Edith Southey there and Sarah Coleridge and uh, Dorothy Wordsworth, all arguing about how badly Coleridge had been treated and whether he deserved it. It was uh, a huge flare-up between the families and things were never the same again. Gosh, that breeze coming off the water, it's such a joy, actually. We are still at the time of year when it's almost warm still, which is a blessing. In a couple of weeks' time, there'll be a definite chill in that breeze. The view is gorgeous. But our view on the sisterhood, that's where we are at now. Can you set the scene at the, let's say, constrained lives these women endured at that time? Women's lives were not exactly enviable, particularly the lives of middle-class and upper-class women. Perversely, working-class women had much more freedom because they weren't expected to be uh, genteel. Dorothy was given for Christmas, I think for her 14th or 15th birthday, a conduct book, one of the 18th century conduct books by her brothers, a father's legacy to his daughters, and it's written by a man called Dr Gregory. And its contents are incredibly shocking. He tells parents that they must prepare their daughters for a life of disappointment. <laughs> oh, cruel. I know. Um, and that they, you know, they must be educated only so far as they can be a partner for a man of sense. Well, that rules me out. <laughs> there are other horrors within its pages, which I won't bore you with, but it, that was uh, the kind of cultural context in which Dorothy Wordsworth was brought up. Uh, there's a famous 18th century poet called Anne Winchelsea who was a countess 
and she dared to publish her work and was absolutely hammered for it. And she wrote a, a poem that kind of sums it up. She says, Alas, a woman that attempts the pen, such a presumptuous creature is esteemed. The fault can, by no virtue, be redeemed. And so there was no way Dorothy Wordsworth was ever uh, going to be licensed to become a poet or a writer in her own right. And the few women that did write tended to write under pseudonyms. I mean, Jane Austen um, published under a pseudonym anonymously. Uh, other women wrote under male pseudonyms. There was no permission to write. And a lot of women suffered very much, as we know now, just how much uh, that cramping of creativity and uh, personal freedom cost women and uh, led to deteriorating health, both mental and physical. And all the fainting women of the Victorian era, uh, the hysterics, it gave Freud a field day. Um, but it all stemmed from women living lives almost as uh, social prisoners and the things that they weren't allowed to do and they weren't allowed to express themselves. That was a very important context in which these young women grew up. We've got the context there. Can you talk a little bit about their day-to-day -day lives? They had been brought up, all of them, to be young ladies and to expect to uh, marry well. They were all the uh, children of either well-to-do merchants or minor gentry. And they would have expected to be able to have servants and live a nice, comfortable life, which is not what happened to any of them. Dorothy in particular at Dove Cottage, she had to do a lot of her own housework. She had one maid for the rough work, but she still did a great deal of work herself. And it wasn't easy. There were flagged floors. There were big black ranges that you had to cook on that had to be cleaned out. Washing was an absolutely mammoth uh, task with all these petticoats and linen sheets all had to be washed in a boiler and then mangled and then hung out. And Dorothy at times spent a whole day ironing. And it was not what they'd been brought up to. Mary Wordsworth, there's a very poignant letter when she explains to a friend um, that she hasn't had time to write because her day has been spent running after one of her children who is slightly disabled, not well. Uh, she's had to uh, go and find people to haymake because the, the hay needed to be got in before it rained. And she said she was walking along the highway and she felt that people, when they looked at her, saw this dishevelled woman in shabby clothes and an old bonnet and assumed to, do, to be someone's servant or a poor farmer's wife when in fact she was the wife of a gentleman. And she felt that this was inappropriate, and it's a really rather sad letter. Sarah Coleridge had a slightly easier life, I suppose, because she was living with her two sisters, so they were able to share a lot of the household work. And they were slightly better off. I mean, Southey, in the end, made quite a bit of money. He realised quite early on that if he was going to support Coleridge's family and uh, his own family and his sister-in-law Mary's family, that he was going to have to earn money. And he was mocked by Wordsworth for becoming Poet Laureate and writing an awful lot of commercial stuff, which he did. But a lot of which is very good and very entertaining. He was a very entertaining man. And he's, of the Lake Poets, he's one of my favourite characters because he seems to have been such a nice man to take all this on. You've got this drudgery of uh, housework, but they actually were supporting the husband's or the partner's writings. 
This was particularly true for Wordsworth, because both Mary and Dorothy, and Sarah Hutchins in some extent, spent a lot of time copying out his work and um, being, being his critic, criticising his work, which is often not appreciated by Wordsworth. But it was very good feedback. They were very sharp. Coleridge relied on them too. Um, when he was staying with the Wordsworth, Sarah Hutchinson in particular would be his um, amanuensis and write things out for him and help him with his work. He became very jealous of Wordsworth, uh, particularly when he moved to London. He said uh, Wordsworth had three wives to look after him and support him, whereas he had none. And he said that uh, this support Wordsworth had, uh, this buoying up of his spirits by the women, left a film upon his moral eye. As the launch just comes into the pier, my mind goes back to the actual cause of our coming together today, your book, A Passionate Sisterhood. And could you just run through the dynamic between the women? The dynamic was very complex. I mean, these were women who would not necessarily have chosen to be friends. They were thrown together by circumstance in relationship into um, this group. And... There were a lot of tensions. They were all very passionate, feisty women in their own way. There was one group centred around Southey, another group of women centred around Wordsworth, and Coleridge, who kind of moved between the two, between the two camps. It was difficult. The two greatest characters in this group were Dorothy Wordsworth and Sarah Coleridge, and they didn't get on at all. Um, Dorothy thought that Sarah Coleridge was rather common, Dorothy being the child of minor gentry and uh, Sarah Coleridge being the daughter of a merchant. There was a, a certain snobbery in that. Sarah was also interested in the things that Dorothy was not. Dorothy didn't care what she wore. She went around the countryside with William. She was quite uh, liberated in that way. Whereas Sarah was very well educated, much better educated than Dorothy, at one of the foremost girls' schools. She'd read Mary Wollstonecraft and had some very modern ideas on women. She was also very well read. She loved fine clothes, socialising. There was one incident when uh, Dorothy Wordsworth had been out for a walk and got very, very wet on the way to uh, the Coleridge's. And without asking Sarah, she just ran up to Sarah's room and took off her wet clothes and put on some of Sarah's. And Sarah Shock was... horror. Sarah was absolutely scandalised and very upset about it. And it was, wasn't the thing you do, but it was the sort of thing that Dorothy Wordsworth did and would do. So the two women really didn't get on. And Dorothy, I mean, said very unkind things, like Sarah was a totally unfit wife for a man such as Coleridge, things like this. So there was a lot of animosity. But they were thrown together by circumstance and, uh, and tragedy, in a way, that when Coleridge became so ill and so disruptive, the women carried on supporting each other, even when Coleridge left. And they supported each other through all sorts of traumas, the deaths of children, illness. There was a, a coming together and a sort of truce between Dorothy and Sarah Coleridge in later life. And of course their daughters became very good friends. Uh, Dora Wordsworth and Sarah Coleridge, the daughter, became best friends. And one of Southey's daughters was part of it. There's a wonderful poem called The Triumvirate, The Three Graces, The Three Beauties. And so that meant that the household was further interconnected. 
Could you tell us something about what I might call the missing woman in this story, Edith Southey? Uh, Edith's mental health deteriorated to such an extent that she had to be committed to um, an asylum. Even when she came back from the asylum, she really didn't want to see people. She became very reclusive. And her mental health continued to deteriorate. And there were times when she didn't even recognise her sister, sometimes not even her children. So she was unable to take part in uh, any kind of relationship with the other women after a point. The narrative of this story is reflected in the elements now because we've got this deteriorating weather that's uh, brewing down the jaws of Borrowdale and coming on us now. So we'll make a little bit of a retreat to the shelter to wrap up this story, which is um, becoming quite sad, really. Thank goodness we found little Lee up just up the bank from the shore, put of shelter from the storm. This is a, a moment where I, I like to turn my thoughts towards your sense of connection and sentiments and your relationships with these women. This project that led to the book, what surprised you most? That's a difficult question to answer. Uh, finding the letters and diaries was absolute treasure trove. What I found wasn't necessarily what I was looking for, but when I was brought this huge box of letters and diaries, I hadn't realised that Dorothy kept uh, a journal of almost the whole of her life. She was the most amazing travel writer. Uh, for a, that surprised me. But it was also the nature of the letters and diaries. Letters from Mary, diaries of Mary's. Who knew that Mary kept diaries as well? When you read the letters and diaries, you're listening to their voices. And that is very moving. I thought at first that it would be Dorothy that I uh, felt most sympathy for and automatically uh, empathised with. But it wasn't. I found Dorothy was quite sharp-tongued and could be very unkind. And I didn't warn to Dorothy at all. I found myself more and more drawn to uh, Sarah Coleridge and Robert Southey. And Sarah Coleridge was quite an endearing figure in the end. I mean, she invented this um, special language that she used to talk in the household, which was very, very funny. She was obviously quite a creative woman. And her letters, her letters are wonderful. She describes life in the... Southey household at Greta Hall in minute detail and it makes you laugh and cry alternately I mean they're absolutely superb and I was drawn to her character that she was um, expecting this wonderful love relationship with Coleridge loved her children loved Coleridge and then of course he abandoned her and he wasn't there for her and when her baby died she wrote heartbreaking letters to him in Germany begging him to come home and of course he didn't, she lost all her hair, which for her, someone who cared about her appearance so much, was a great tragedy, and uh, a humiliation for the rest of her life. But she and Southey had this very funny relationship. They enjoyed jokes together, and I think if circumstances had been different, might even have married each other if um, divorce had been possible in those days. But their relationship became very close, and they were very, very fond of each other. I think the auto 
fast forward to the sort of at the end of the lives of these people we've been talking about, and I believe Sarah Coles was the first to die. Actually, the first of the group to die, I think, was Edith Southey, because Robert Southey uh, remarried shortly afterwards. But sadly, uh, his marriage had barely begun when he had a serious stroke on his honeymoon, and uh, he died shortly afterwards. He was the first of them to die. Coleridge lived a lot longer than you'd expect for someone um, with so many ailments and who'd abused his body in, in such a way. Uh, he was the next to die, and William, of course, was the last of the three poets to die. Of the women, after Edith, Sarah Coleridge died very suddenly of a heart attack getting dressed in the morning. And Sarah Hutchinson died of a, a seizure, apparently. Um, and then uh, Dorothy and Mary were left. Dorothy, after years and years of uh, such ill health that she had to be pushed around the garden uh, in a bath chair and was the invalid in the attic of Rydal Mount for uh, a couple of decades, she outlived almost everyone. And in fact, she uh, only died about a year before Mary. And Mary was... Uh, she, in her obituary, she was called the last bright star of the constellation, um, and she died about a year after Dorothy. It's a remarkable story, isn't it? The women and the men, they all were part of this constellation. Gosh, the wind coming off the lake is quite fearsome, isn't it? Anyway, this gives me the moment where I can do the quick-fire questions, which you've got no warning for, Kathleen. What was your first Lakeland memory? It's um, being pinned against a wall between a cow's horns. I think I was about three. That is quite some moment. It wasn't a bull. No, cows are far more dangerous than bulls. <laughs> you were on the horns of a dilemma there, weren't you? Um, what is your favourite fell? Oh, it has to be Skiddaw. I was brought up within sight of Skiddaw all my life, and that's my favourite. Is there a particular way you love to climb? I like going up from the Dash Falls uh, past uh, Skiddaw House. That's my favourite way up. And, of course, it was quite near to the farm where I was brought up. So. Wainwright or Wordsworth? Wordsworth. When you've climbed the fells, what would be the most important thing to put in your rucksack? A plastic bag to sit on, to have your lunch on the damp grass, to cover your head with it pours with rain. And of course, you can always use it as a bivy bag if you get stuck out overnight. Practical, practical. Have you a favourite view? Oh, Oswater, I think. Uh, that's one of my earliest memories, is being um, taken on the steamer um, on Oswater by my grandparents. And I have a particularly beautiful view um, from one side of um, Oswater looking across to um, St Martin's in the Vale on the other side. That's one of the most beautiful views. Is there a pretty memorable walk you've had in your time? Oh, yes. I think that would have to be uh, coming down from the fells, from a climb, uh, very late on a winter's day, frosty, and falling down Dungeon Gill. No. And fortunately... Because it was quite late, there was a mountain rescue team on an exercise <laughs> nearby and they carried me down, which was quite humiliating, really. <laughs> Have you a Cumbrian hero or heroine, dead or alive? That is a really difficult question. 
I don't know. I grew up among fell runners, and I always thought they were absolutely amazing. But I think if I had to choose one, it would perhaps have to be Beatrix Potter for her persistence and the way she looked after her sheep, the way she took to farming. I think uh, she was a farmer that my father admired and uh, that I think in her quiet way, she's a bit of a heroine. Have you a favourite pub? I think the Loveswater pub is my favourite um, at Kirk the moment. Inn. The Kirk Style Inn. The home brewed beer and the food and the views and the way it's tucked away out of sight. Beautiful. Lovely view of Melbrecht from there, yes. isn't there? Absolutely fabulous. If you could take one Lakeland book to a desert island, what tome would that be? I think I'd choose Dorothy Wordsworth's journals, the Victorian edition, which has extracts from all of them, including the uh, uh, rambles in Scotland with Coleridge and her visit to the Isle of Wight with Mary Hutchinson's sister Joanna. She wrote a wonderful account of that. And the passionate sisterhood will be tucked away in the corner as well, I think. What would be your perfect Lakeland day? I think I might choose to go to Horsewater and walk from Horsewater up uh, Nanbield uh, to the Tarn, looking down over Horsewater. That is uh, a walk that I absolutely love. And the waterfalls up there are quite spectacular. And there's, it's so peaceful, there's hardly anybody there. I love it. The way up from Oswater across, uh, we knew it as Pasnabil. That's a very old, um, almost Gaelic, it's a Celtic. It's known as Nanbil now. But it was always known as Pasnabil. It's magic. Mardale is a lovely, lovely valley. Yeah, my father went to the uh, last sheep gather in Mardale before they flooded it. He was only a boy, he was a hired lad. And he was there at the last sheep gather. When the time comes and a few friends gather at a place that means something special to you, where in Lakeland might that be? It's actually a, a place called Moor Divock, which is a very ancient landscape of um, stone circles, cairns, uh, burial mounds, and old settlements. There's even a, a kist a stone kist, which I occasionally go and lie in. I curl up in and pretend I'm, I'm somebody quite ancient. Um, I, lo I love it. I love that landscape. And of course, when you walk to the end of Moordivok, you're looking down Oleswater. You're above Pulley Bridge, looking down Oleswater. And um, that is one of my favorite places in the whole world. And that's where I want my ashes scattered. So my family have been given instructions that that is where they're there to, uh, to meet and uh, pay their last respects to me. Kathleen, thank you so much for taking us all on this wonderful journey. Thank you very much and thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Journey's end, uh, got the hustle and bustle of Keswick. 
people enjoying a bit of lunch, Mark. We've um, sought some shelter. It started deteriorating. No, it was. It was sad about that. Despite the uh, conditions, we've escaped that and come into the town. And uh, uh, it was wonderful talking to Kathleen. She encapsulated all the stellar uh, lives that, uh, and particularly the women and how they related to the men. It was uh, quite remarkable. Stories that she brought out that were totally new to me. Total recommendation for her book, A Passionate Sisterhood, it's called. It's not the kind of book I would normally read. I think I came across it. I was at the, uh, is it the new bookshop in Cockermouth? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was there just having a bit of um, a large slice of cake the other day. That's why I tend to go to bookshops. It doesn't affect you. You look still as slender <laughs> oh, as me. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> uh, and I saw Kathleen's book and I just, I picked it up. I never really read biographies. And even if I was to, this was exactly the kind of biography I probably wouldn't normally read. Read it and I was absolutely hooked. If you love the lakes, you're reading about all these places that we know about, you know, and the walks that they did between Keswick and Grasmere. So you've got all of that going on. You've got this amazing visual picture created by the diary entries about what life was like at the time. But also, really, you know, it's a story about people and there's so much tragedy in that book i mean you can't get around it they lived really hard lives lived often in poverty often with with a lot of illness a huge amount of sadness these women kept getting battered time and time again by misfortune but kept on going and also all the while supporting the men who often didn't behave particularly well it's fascinating. It, it, amazing resilience. And we can now get a whole new prism on that time from this one book. So uh, regular housekeeping then. This is episode number... 65. Oh, goodness. 65. For 64 previous episodes, you can go to www.countrystride.co.uk. We're on social media. Facebook and Twitter at countrystride one the next few podcasts, we're taking each week as it goes, really, at the moment, but I think it's fair to say... Possibly at the coast, I don't know, because I, I went to the opening of the Sourcroft to Whitehaven stretch of the England coast path last Wednesday, yeah. uh, and uh, you can see all the people involved with the process are getting so much buzz out of doing it. They are not just creating a path, they're creating an access margin to the coast, and they're realising that it's going to be a tremendous asset. So I think we might very well cover that next, but all depends who we can muster in the next fortnight. A celebration of the English Coast Path, particularly the Cumbrian section, that sounds like a very worthwhile country stride, so maybe we'll try and make that happen. But for today, from Keswick, and dwelling on that wonderful story of these amazing women... We're saying goodbye for now. And um, thank you all for listening. <laughs>